I welcome you to turn back to Titus chapter 3. We're looking at the opening number of verses here. We've entitled it, The Need of All Souls. Let's just unite our heart together. There's a little clue, as I said this morning, in the title. And you'll work that out during our introduction. Maybe some of you have it already done. But we need the Lord's help as we come to the ministry of the Word. Let's just seek His blessing. Father in heaven, realize, Lord, it's not what these hands can do. It's not what we can feel that makes this or any soul right with God. But Lord, it's Thy work, O Christ. Thank Thee for the atoning work the finished work. Thank thee, Lord, tonight for Calvary. Oh, we praise thee, Lord, for the one who paid it all. We thank thee for the one who is obedient, not only in coming down to this earth and taking upon himself the form of man, but obediently going to the cross and bearing there the punishment for our sin we should have borne. Oh, we thank the Lord that Jesus paid it all. Thank the Lord tonight the work is complete. We have a living, exalted Savior who's mighty to save, strong to deliver. And oh, we pray, even in the gathering before us, the congregation, we pray if there's those without of Christ, Lord, that I might speak that still small voice tonight. Might be young might be older, might be middle-aged. Lord, whatever the circumstance, whatever the age might be, Lord, I pray that I might speak tonight out of mercy in some soul. O oh God, we pray that as thy people we might be taught of thee. And I pray for the Spirit of God to come and brood over us. Lord, teach us, give us that understanding, even as we look at these verses. Help me, Lord, in the pulpit, Praying that thou, thou would fill us with thy spirit and with power. Oh God, we know that past, Lord, help and past blessing will not suffice. Need thee again. Congregation needs thee again. Even in the listening, the hearing of thy word. So Lord, abide with us. Cause thy word to run and be glorified. Give me words that must and shall prevail. Give us those prevailing words, we pray, in our Savior's precious name. Amen. Every year now, there's a fearful allegiance given to celebrating Halloween. Many parents, thinking that there's no harm in it, they'll decorate the houses, and the cobwebs and lights around windows and stuff like that. They encourage children to dress up, put masks on, go to Halloween parties, and all in the name of fun. The child of God, of course, knows different. Because witchcraft and such like is termed in the Scriptures. You can look at it when you go home again. We're not going to take the time tonight. Deuteronomy chapter 18. It's termed there as an abomination unto the Lord. 
One of the strongest terms. I've already and often said that in the Hebrew language. It's a, a very strong term. It's an abomination. So the child of God, and by inference, those who know the Scriptures, read the Scriptures, will know different. Men and women, while I'm not going to preach on this tonight, I may do it another time, but I'm not going to preach on it tonight. I want to remind all concerned that it's pagan. And it's devilish to the very core. And maybe you don't know the the context of it. But I want to tell you, the 1st of November in Roman Catholicism is known as All Saints Day. And because that is when all can come for so-called absolution of their sins and confession. And that's why particularly if you pass a mass house on Tuesday morning, it will be particularly busy. The night before gives them a license to get up to all the sin, all the devilment, all the wickedness that they desire. The night before, you see, is called All Hallows' Eve. That's where we get Halloween from. The 1st of November is the day that Rome commemorates the faithful dead. Those who have made it out of purgatory. Whereas the 2nd of November is called All Souls Day. And that celebration is based on the teaching that the souls of the faithful which at death had not been cleansed from their temporal punishment and or have not fully been purged from their mortal sins, they may be helped by prayer and they may be helped by the sacrifice of the Mass. In other words, when they died, they had not attained full sanctification. They hadn't died with a moral perfection. And this sanctification must be completed in purgatory if they're ever to be in heaven one day. And men and women, I want to tell you, it's all a big deception, it's all a big lie, and it fills the coffers of Rome. The Scriptures speak nothing of purgatory. They speak nothing about praying for the dead. Remember when David was to get before God as his child that was born was sick. And when they came in and he realized that that there was something that happened, he realized the child had died. He stopped praying. There's nothing in the Scriptures about praying for the dead. There's nothing in the Scriptures of the living being able to help the dead after they are gone. And to think that the Halloween celebrations is all linked and tied in with these erroneous dogmas of Rome. Men and women, that's frightening. Frightening to say the least when we see so many parents and so many children submerging themselves in it. And particular cities and towns throughout our land are are given over to it. Because they're of that persuasion. What all souls need is the cleansing from their sin before the death angel calls or comes. Because die in your sins and Christ says where I am ye cannot come and we know where Christ is tonight. I have gone to prepare a place for you. He's in heaven. 
But praise God, we have the message of the gospel that speaks of what God for the sinner in salvation does. And it's summed up for us by the Apostle Paul as he speaks here to believers, or should I say maybe particularly to Titus who was ministering unto these believers who were saved out of paganism. And that's why I want us to look just for a little time at the opening verses of Titus chapter 3. I want you to notice the characteristics of God here. When we consider God's salvation, and that is what is in view particularly there, if you notice verse 5, where Paul says, He saved us in the middle of that verse. Then understand that the entire Godhead is involved in salvation. That much can be drawn from these verses. Look at the words of verse 4. The Father, God the Father is in view. Jesus Christ is also mentioned. Verse 5, it's the Spirit that is spoken about. Verse 6, it is Christ, God the Son. And it's when we give attention to these words that we learn something of who God really is. His character is seen to be one who is full of kindness. Notice verse 4, But after that the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. That word kindness can be also rendered goodness. The God whom we uplift before you, the one who before he spake this world into being out of nothing, had planned and decreed the great plan of salvation whereby sinful and guilty men can be saved is one who's full of goodness. The psalmist could oft repeat that in Psalm 107. He says, Oh, that men would praise the Lord for His goodness and for His wonderful works to the children of men. And yet, how is it, how is it, dear soul, dear loved one, that in hearing the message of the gospel, that it seems that you've despised it? That's what the Apostle Paul brings out in Romans chapter 2, for example. Romans chapter 2 and the words of verse 4. In fact, he uses the very same word in this verse. He says, Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. There's what the goodness of God should lead thee to. It should lead thee to repentance. Contrary to what the world may think of the Lord God. Contrary to what the perception is from those who don't know God as He has revealed Himself in the Scriptures, the Lord is good. And the Lord is good all times. He is kind. And we implore you, sinner, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. But you'll notice also, He's a God of compassion because we've read there in verse 4, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. There are the gods of man-made religions and why live a great following. They know nothing of worshipping a loving God. There's no loving relationship of, between father and son, for example. There's no intimacy. But the God of the Scriptures is one who's loving. And that love has appeared toward men in the giving of His only begotten Son, Romans 5, verse 8. But God commendeth His love toward us. 
And not while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And dear loved one, how often do we see the compassion? How often do we see the love of Christ displayed during his earthly ministry? You consider, maybe when you read of the great multitudes that the Lord was to see, we read in Matthew chapter 9 that he was moved with compassion in them. Why? Because they fainted and they were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. They had no spiritual leader. Just as the sheep needs a shepherd, so people need the spiritual uh, under-shepherd and leader. And the Lord saw them, and they, they had none. And dear loved one, without Christ, maybe under the sound of my voice, I present before you one who's a loving God, and that love was seen in its height, that love was seen in its zenith, and its climax at Calvary. For there the sinless Lamb of God was to give Himself as an offering for the sin of His people, that they might be saved. It wasn't His sin that kept Him on the cross. It was His love for His people. And it was by the kindness and love of God that salvation was revealed to a lost and to a dying world. Man could never have found salvation of themselves. There's none that seeketh after God. Man of himself will never search. He'll never seek to be saved. But God has to reveal it to him. The same truth is fine if you turn back to chapter 2. Look at verse 11. It says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, all sorts of men. You see, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first as well as unto the Greek. I wonder, have you considered God in such terms? Yes, He's a holy God, and that's why He must punish sin. But dear friend, the Lord has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from His way and live. And God reveals that love to you, sinner. Every time that you hear the gospel message preached in your hearing, you have been given opportunity to hear words whereby you must be saved. A message which is able to save your very soul. You consider that he does this. Even though God stands in contrast to what man is. That contrast is seen in full technicolor when we look at the words of verse 3. Let's read this together. It says, For we ourselves also wear, now that's important because he's speaking in the past tense here, wear sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers, lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. We have seen here the great contrast. Because in the words of verse 4, we've got the heart of God. After that the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. A heart of kindness, a heart of compassion. But look at the heart of man in his natural sinful state born of Adam's loins. In the words of verse 3, Paul reminds them they were what they were before they were saved. You are foolish. You're disobedient. You're deceived. You are serving divers' lusts and pleasures. And that's only man's behavior and state before God. You read on the rest of the verse, look at at what he is before his fellow man, living in malice and envy, hating, hating one another. Do we not see that all around us in the world? Man is full of hatred. He's envious of someone else doing better than him. He's jealous. 
There's a hatred of each other. That's why he will defraud him. That's why he'll steal from him. That's why he'll murder him. That's why he'll commit adultery by taking his wife. By the way, believer, the next time that you're tempted to envy or hate one another, then consider it's not of God. It's of the devil. And sadly, there's too much of that in the church of Jesus Christ today. You count the number of things in verse 3, you will see there that there's seven. Here's a sevenfold description of the wickedness of man. Seven in the scriptures has the sense of a completeness, uh, a fullness, if you like. You want a verse that uh, tells you of the depravity of man, then here you have it. But what a contrast. You see, that's why verse 4 begins with but. Paul has spoken about natural man, what they were before they were saved, and then he contrasts what man is to what God is, and he says, but. Because there is the characteristics of God, and yet knowing the heart, knowing the state of man, God yet revealed his salvation to sinners. I wonder, do you see your need tonight of being saved? Can you see yourself in the words of verse 3? That's why you need Christ. I want you to notice here the channel of salvation. don't know whether you've ever considered or seen this or not, but if you read from verse 4 to verse 7, you'll notice it's all one sentence. It's all one sentence. And leaving verse 4, we come to see the channel or the means by which God uses for salvation. Can be noted, first of all, in the negative, if you like, it's not a works. Verse 5, not by works of righteousness, which he has done. Mankind in his natural state is not in that place of being right with God. There's none righteous, no, not one. And if we look at the previous verse in Romans chapter 3 that I've quoted there, it is proved because it says both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. No difference. The prophet Isaiah reminds us that all our righteousnesses are but as filthy rags in God's sight. In other words, there's nothing that we can present before God for merit. There's nothing that, we can, that can warrant us His salvation. That's really what we were singing in that, those words of Horatio's banner. Nothing of merit in any one of us. Nothing that can warrant our, God's salvation to us. Instead of being in a state of righteousness, man is in a state of sin. He's in a state of being at enmity with God. And even though there are the pleasures of sin, and those pleasures, yes, they last for a season, yet the sinner is one who's wretched, and he's one who's miserable. And the Apostle Paul, who was writing this epistle, was one who had a great concern for his own kinsfolk. His heart's desire, his prayer, was that they might be saved. Maybe I should take you back to Romans chapter 10. Just see it there for yourself. Look at the words of verse 2, for example. He says, for I, I've already quoted to you really verse 1, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of God's righteousness, going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. They were zealous 
Oh, they were zealous of the religious works and establishing their own righteousness. But what they needed, of course, was the righteousness of God. And the apostle was one who stood where they once, uh, once stood where they were. He had the very same credentials. The words of Philippians 3 reminds us of that. He could speak of his stock of Israel, of what tribe he came from, of of touching the law. He was a Pharisee. He was one of the religious leaders, the elite of that day. He was one who, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless, he says. But yet in meeting with Christ, on that Damascus road and experiencing God's salvation. You know what he says? He counted all those things but dung. Chapter 3, verse 9, And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. If salvation was by works, then the apostle could have laid claim to it. There's no salvation by works. There's no salvation by doing one's best, being that good neighbor. There's no salvation by the waters of baptism or the ordinances of the church. You see, it's not by works of righteousness which we have done. That's not the channel. Instead, I want you to see that there's the need of the mercy of God, God's mercy. Because it says, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. What is mercy? What God withholding from sinful man what we deserve. And tonight the mercy of God is known to you, dear loved one, for if you have not, if you have received what you have deserved, you already will be languishing in a lost sinner's hell. Because that's what each one of us deserves. Because in Adam we all fell into sin. We all rebelled against God and disobeyed His word. We all broke His law. And because you are yet in the land of the living, and you're yet under the sound of the gospel which is able to make thee wise unto salvation, you're yet in the day of God's grace to your soul, where opportunity has been given for you to repent and to be converted, that that can only speak of the great and of the bountiful mercy of God. And now, my friend, is what you need tonight. It's the mercy of God in salvation. For God's mercy is able to meet you where you are. He's able to lift you from the dunghill, and he's able to set you among princes. You want to see that illustrated? Come back with me to Luke chapter 10. It's a familiar passage. The boys and girls will uh, be familiar even with it as well. It's what is termed as the parable of the Good Samaritan. And you know, there's many fanciful interpretations put on this. And we don't need to go that way. It's just plain. Plain and simple. You know the man was to fall among thieves who stripped him. The roads in those days, uh, going down to Jericho in particular, were known for the robber and such like. So this was not something unknown. The Lord knew the setting. He said, a certain man, verse 30, went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. There's a picture of, of man. There, there, there's a, a picture of your life without Christ. You see, Jerusalem is known as the holy place. 
And when we sinned in Adam, we turned our back toward God and we were going down. There's a man here, and he's walking down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He falls among thieves. He's found uh, even stripped and robbed, and he's left for dead. And that, dear sinner, is what sin and the devil does to you. You are that one by the wayside. Only for you it's worse because the Scriptures tell us that we are dead in trespasses and in sins. And we know how there were those who passed by, but you know they passed on. They didn't want anything to do with this man. But yet there was one who happened to come, who happened to be from the land of Samaria. And he was a little bit different. You'll notice verse 33, what it says of him. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. Please understand the context. The Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. Vice versa. If they had to get to the other side of the land of Samaria, instead of walking through it, they would circumvent it. That's how much they hated each other. But here's a Samaritan. And he comes to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion on him. He came to where he was. He was to help him. He was to bind up his wounds, pouring in the oil and wine. But oh, don't miss the application to the whole parable as he gives it, as the Lord gives it to the man who asked the question, where do you find it? Verse 36, which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And he said, he that showed mercy on him. Then said Jesus unto him, Go and do thou likewise. It was the one who showed mercy to him. Dear people, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the Savior. He came to those who had no love for him. He came unto his own, but his own received him not. And he comes to where you are, sinner, unworthy and unlovely as you are, yet he has compassion on your sin-sick soul. He's able to care for you. Thank God his blood is able to wash away your sin. He pours in the oil of his spirit. So when the call is made, the bridegroom cometh. The people of God, the believer, will have the oil in their lamps. Dear loved one, the point is this. If you are to be saved, then it will be by the mercy of God. Given to you what you don't deserve. Tell me, will you not call upon him for mercy now? Mercy there was great, and grace was free. Will you not call upon him now? Save you. You know, there is the channel of salvation, but I want you to notice, in closing, the change in salvation. There's nothing of easy believism in our text in these verses that we've been looking at. If these verses speak of anything, it is the change that is wrought through salvation in the life of the sinner. What is the change that is seen? You see, there's a removal of sin. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration. New birth is in view, for that is what regeneration has to do with. 
It's the work of God, the Holy Spirit, causes that new life to begin in the life of the believer, the repentant believer. The message of the Savior to the religious leader of Nicodemus was, you must be born again. He had to be born from above. And you see, that's what happens in salvation, as John 1, in the words of verse 12, reminds us. It says, But as many as received him, to them give he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe in his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In salvation there's a change. Men and women, I want to maybe diverse just for a moment. That's one of the biggest fears I have. My fear is of false professions. I'm talking about the free church. I don't want false professions. I want God to do the real thing. Because the false professions are twice as hard to reach thereafter. But a false professions, whether it's in a mission setting or a meeting setting, and there can be all this and that, but they go out and there's no change. But when God does the work, there is a change. He gives us a new heart. He puts a new spirit within us. We're born again. We're made a new creature in Christ. If any man be in Christ Jesus, he's a new creature, new creation. Old things passed away. Behold, all things become new. There must be this change. And when God saves the sinner, notice that there is a cleansing, for that is the, what washing has to do with. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. You can't clean up your life. You can't make it more acceptable before God. What is needed is the cleansing power of the Savior's precious atoning blood. Tell me, have you known what it is to be cleansed from your sin? Have you known what it is to have your sin removed as far as the east as from the west, the psalmist says? So far hath he removed my transgressions from me. You see, that's what God does for the sinner in salvation. And the change means that there's the reversal of the sinner for what he used to be. The change that God does in salvation is complete. It's a thorough one. If you turn back to the start of that chapter, just lift your eyes up to verse 1 and 2 again that we read. Because earlier on I showed you the sevenfold description of the wickedness of man in verse 3. Yet you look at the verse 1 and 2 and to what Paul was exhorting God's servant to remind these believers to do. Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers. You can count these. To obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work, to speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers, but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. There's a sevenfold counsel there. Sevenfold counsel for those pagans who were now saved. These were things they knew nothing about in their pagan unsaved days. And the contrast is seen to what they once were because Paul then goes on to say what they were in verse 3. What a change. What a reversal has taken place. 
And it's through God's salvation that they have experienced it. When God does his work that starts in the heart, it will manifest itself outwardly. Such is the change that is wrought in the sinner by God's salvation. You know, there's another little thought here as well. There's the renewing of the Spirit. Verse 5, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, that which was lost in Adam due to sin is recovered through the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord came on a rescue mission to seek and to save that which was lost. To rescue men and women from the bondage because of Adam's fall. And the seat and the center of this renewing work is from the heart, regenerated by God's Spirit. And it works throughout the whole man. For Paul could say in another place, the inward man is renewed day by day. And will be so. Until that day when Christ presents his church, his body, his bride. And he'll present it faultless and spotless before the throne of glory above, without any such wrinkle or any such thing. Dear loved one, that is the salvation that you can experience, the sinner can experience this evening. And see this. It's all because of the Savior. Verse 6, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. It's all because of the Lord. For all the blessings of God's salvation have been purchased by Him. Purchased by Him on the cross of Calvary, by His atoning work there, where He was to endure the wrath of God where he was to die as the sinner's substitute, where he satisfied divine justice, where he cried, finished. He paid that once for all sacrifice for sin forever. Now, will you seek him and be saved? You haven't got Christ in your heart tonight. You don't know God's salvation. Here's the need of all souls. Forget about the dogmas of Romanism tonight, which many foolish Protestants get involved in. Here's the need of all souls. It's Christ as your Savior. That you might know what it is to be pardoned from sin, washed in the Savior's blood. May the Lord bless his word even to all who hear it tonight for his own name's sake.